This uh, coming Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will return to our exposition of the book of Ephesians. Uh, Hopefully by then, everyone or pretty much everyone will have concluded their summer wanderings and uh, we will be resuming uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians and we'll be concluding chapters 4 through 6. For this morning, for communion, Hebrews the 8th chapter, the first six verses. Now, as you turn there, let me remind you that the book of Hebrews was written to primarily Jewish Christians who were exhausted. They were undergoing persecution, and they felt like giving up. Have you ever felt like giving up? Well, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6 addresses folks that felt like giving up. Hebrews 8, let's pray before reading. Our Father, we have just sung together, uh, venturing wholly upon the one who shed his blood, who now is the ascended Christ. And we ask that we will be careful with your word to understand it and to apply it to our lives, and that we, your people, will be more conformed to the image of your Son, having studied this word together today than we were before coming here to worship your name. And we pray for those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ at all, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would draw them out of darkness into light. And we ask that the Holy Spirit who has inspired this word so that it is without error in the whole and in the part will now illumine its page so that our hearts may see Christ Jesus and understand its application to our lives. In the name of Christ Jesus, we ask and pray these things. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 1 through verse 6. This is the word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. People of God, as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we remember what the Lord has done for us by shedding his blood on the tree, bearing our curse and removing our guilt. Hebrews stresses the once for all character of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, what the old theologians called the finished work of Christ. And I know of no greater phrase, do you? 
The work of Christ is done. The work of Christ is finished. The atonement is made. Our guilt has been removed. There is nothing that we add to it. There is nothing that we contribute to it. Our justification and acceptance is on the basis of the finished work of Christ. But we also remember him until he comes, which reminds us that our Savior is risen from the dead and that now he lives for us in his ascension life. The one who died for us is a living Savior, our great high priest in heaven, who not only died for us, but who in his ascension life intercedes for us. The heavenly high priestly work of Christ is the point of the book of Hebrews. Now notice that it says in verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this. The term used there means the main thing, the main point, the head of it all, if you will. And if we take chapter 8-1 with chapter 13, verse 22, which tells us that the entire book of Hebrews is an exhortation Then we see the whole book of Hebrews is an exhortation in which the heavenly high priestly work of Christ is the main point. So it must be important. If this is the main point of the book, it must be important for us to see. Indeed, indispensable. So let's see why. And as we turn to the text, the first thing that we want to see together is Christ, our priest, is sitting That's first. Christ, our priest, is sitting. And so verse 1 tells us now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now the writer of Hebrews actually began his book that way when he said in verse 3 of the first chapter, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you just turn over a page or two to chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, you see it stressed again. Chapter 10, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so Hebrews 8, 1 through 6 stresses the enthronement of Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What does this mean then that he sits? Why this this emphasis upon the sitting of our great high priest? What does it mean? Well, it means that his mission is accomplished. It means that his atonement is done. It means that the blood has been shed never to be shed again. It means that all of the types and shadows, all of the sacrifices that pointed to him are fulfilled in his one and final sacrifice. It means that your acceptance with God is completed by the removal of your guilt through his own shed blood for your redemption. It means that the wrath of God has once for all been satisfied for those for whom he shed his blood. 
And it means that once he was humbled, but now he is exalted. That once the Son of God entered into this world and assumed human nature, and he obeyed the law we broke, went to the cross, but then he was raised by the power of the Father from the dead, and he ascended on high, no longer to be humbled, humiliated, but now to live in exaltation glory. And it means this, the Jewish high priest never sat down in the divine presence, but our high priest not only sat down in the divine presence, but he holds sway over the universe, for he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means the position of power and all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted into his mediatorial hands so that the whole universe is under the sway of his absolute sovereignty. Now of that Savior who sat down, we read in this text, we have, we have him. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Echomen, we have a present active indicative, meaning we have him now and we will continue to have him. As F.F. Bruce put it so beautifully, his once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious His contact with the Father is immediate and unbroken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending, and therefore the salvation which he secures is absolute. What does it mean that our priest is now seated, his work is done, his rule and sway is complete, and your salvation is absolute because of his sovereign accomplishment. Now, I think that's great news, don't you? You have such an high priest, not standing any longer, but seated at this position of authority. But then we move on in the text, and we see, secondly, that Christ, our priest, ministers in the sanctuary. Now, verse 2 mentions the true tabernacle or tent. It says in verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent, true tabernacle is heaven in the Father's presence. True here, speaking of a true tent or tabernacle, is not over against false. True means the original, not a copy, not an imitation. So that what we have in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple is but a copy, an imitation of the true tabernacle, which is heaven itself. The Holy of Holies is heaven itself. Verse 24 of the ninth chapter tells us that, chapter 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So there he is, ascended on high. There he is ministering in the holy of holies, which is heaven itself. Our Lord is in that better country to which we are moving, that better country referenced in chapter 11 to which those who have faith in Christ are moving. 
Our Lord Jesus has blazed the trail so that we might go behind him into the very presence of God and into that ultimate inheritance that is promised for us. And we have access into that inheritance now. We may come to that throne of grace now. We may pour out our burdens into his ear now. We may anticipate that heavenly inheritance now. We may live in the fullness and reality of what that means now because we have a high priest who ministers for us in the heavenly sanctuary. It is a future inheritance, of course, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It is a future inheritance that is promised us, but the point here is that Jesus has already entered that place which awaits you and me as believers. And there he ministers in such a way that the believer's entry into that future inheritance is guaranteed, and because we have him, we have that inheritance. So no matter what your struggles and trials and difficulties and disappointments are in this present evil age, the promise is we have that inheritance because we have the Savior who has entered in to minister for us and we have him now. But then we move on in the text and see thirdly that Christ our priest is interceding for us. But the text tells us that if a high priest, he must have a ministry. And we know from the book of Hebrews as a whole that ministry is a ministry of intercession. He is ministering in heaven for us. Now the argument of verses 3 through 5 is simply this. Had Christ remained on earth, he would not be serving as high priest. The Levitical system is obsolete. His ministry in heaven is superior to the earthly. The death of Christ rent the veil, closing the Old Testament economy. The earthly sanctuary was no more than a copy. The real sanctuary is in heaven, and his service in heaven is far superior to that of the old. And the superiority of that ministry now is found in that on the basis of his finished work, he is interceding for his people, but on the basis of that finished work. He is interceding for us on the basis of that final sacrifice of his shed blood. So in chapter 7, verse 27, we are told he had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Spurgeon said it beautifully, a God bowing his head and suffering and dying in the person of manhood, put such a singular efficacy into every groan and every pang that it needs not that his pang should be eternal or that he should die a second death. Remember that in pecuniary matters, you must give quid pro quo, but that in matters of penal justice, no such thing is demanded. The dignity of the person adds a special force to the substitution, and thus one bleeding Savior can make an atonement for millions of sinful men, and the captain of our salvation can bring multitudes unto glory, and that's what he's doing. 
He shed his blood for his people, millions of them, millions upon millions of them, and he is bringing them to glory. So I ask you, how does this touch my life and how does this touch your life that Christ is there interceding for us? Well, let me list a few ways. How does this touch your life? Think of these bullet points. It touches your life in this way. He appears in heaven in God's presence, in your stead, so that you are accepted in his person. He exhibits before the Father an accepted sacrifice, completely sufficient, that removed your sin and mine. His elect children for whom he intercedes cannot, must not, will not perish. He is interceding for his chosen who have yet to believe, assuring that they will believe. His blood continues to avail for our sin, even in our daily sins and failings. He delivers us from temptation and leads us homeward when we fail. He protects us from the accusation of the devil. His intercession enables us to grow in grace and guarantees our perseverance. He maintains the bond of peace. He maintains our communion with God so that it is irrevocable. He makes our service acceptable. He presents our prayers. Think of this. He presents our prayers in perfection to the Father. As old Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it, prayer as it comes from the saints is weak and languid, but when the arrow of the saint's prayer is put into the bow of Christ's intercession, it pierces the throne of grace. And that's because you have a great high priest who intercedes for you. People of God, he ever lives to make intercession for us in these ways and more. It touches your life. Can you see it? And then fourthly, as we move in the text, we see that Christ, our priest's ministry of intercession, is superior to all that has preceded it. And we find this particularly in verse 6 when he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so your Savior is the true and final mediator. He is the one who mediates, the text says. Now this was an interesting word that was used in the the non-literary papyri of the day. Basically it means a go-between, a middleman. The idea of suretyship was attached to it. Someone who gets both parties together and brings agreement. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, not two, not three, not a dozen, no philosophy, no other religion, no, no, no religious leader, only Jesus is the mediator who can bring God and man together. John Owen said, To come unto God by Christ for forgiveness and therein to behold the law issuing all its threats and curses in his blood and losing its sting, putting an end to its obligation unto punishment. 
in the cross. To see all sins gathered up in the hands of God's justice and made to meet on the mediator and eternal love springing forth triumphantly from his blood, flourishing into pardon, grace, mercy, forgiveness. This the heart can be enlarged unto only by the Spirit of God. Owen is saying the only person who can understand what the cross is all about and his need of the cross, the satisfaction of the cross, the beauty, the wonder of what he did is the person whose heart is opened by the Spirit of God and may he be at work this morning opening some sinner's heart to receive him by faith because Jesus is the only mediator. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is the exclusivity of the gospel. There is no other person, no other way, no other road to heaven, no way to know God except through Jesus. And so he is the mediator of a better covenant with better promises, verse 6 tells us. The old covenant said, do and live. In the new covenant, we live and then do. Christ fulfills all the conditions of acceptance, and we add nothing to that work of Jesus. And so he uses the term better. Better because it is the new covenant, as he goes on to expound in this chapter. In verse 6, he says, more excellent, and uses the term better twice. Hebrews is relentless in presenting the superiority of Christ and saying to us, just look, just look at who he is. Just look at what he has done. Look at him. Look at his finished work. Look at his intercession for you in heaven. Look, look at the glory of the Savior. Look, look at what he has done. Look at the superiority of Christ. Look at your incomparable high priest in heaven. And I want to challenge us to keep our gaze fixed on him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Because there is so much within our own hearts and in this world that would take our eyes off of him and away from this truth and away from this reality. But we must set our eyes like a flint and keep our gaze on Jesus, the incomparable high priest in heaven. Will you this morning take this to heart that the Christ who died for you once for all ever lives to make intercession for you? Chapter 7, verse 25. He ever lives to make intercession for you. But let's be more precise so that we may benefit even more. If he is ministering in heaven by interceding for us, then the fifth thing I want us to see is this, the characteristics of Christ's intercession. What is that intercession? How does it look? What is he actually doing for us in heaven? And I have delighted from time to time in bringing to you some of the works of the old theologians who have enumerated this. I owe nothing that will cheer the heart more than these truths. One of the old Scotch divines, his name was William Symington, helps us to apply these things by saying this, from the character of the advocate, we may judge what will be the qualities of his advocacy. Now that makes sense. If you understand the character of the mediator, the character of Christ, the character of his intercession will then flow from it. 
You'll understand what his mediation is all about, what his intercession is all about when your gaze is focused upon the character of the one who is actually doing the interceding. And so what are some of the characteristics of Christ's intercession? Let me give you eight of them. A lot more where that came from, but let me give you eight. First of all, your Savior's intercession for you is skillful intercession. Skillful intercession. We're ignorance. Often we don't know for whom to pray or how to pray. We simply groan before the Lord. We, we, we pray amiss, but our high priest does not. He takes those prayers that we offer that are amiss. We offer them with sincere hearts and faith, but we're off base. We don't know how these things relate to God's perfect plan, but he does. And so he takes that petition, he wraps them in his own merit and presents them with perfection before the Father. Now that's skill, isn't it? The intercessory work of Christ is skillful. The intercessory work of Christ, secondly, is morally pure. There is no intercession that I will offer for any person that will be absolutely morally pure in and of myself, but we have a great high priest in heaven who is holy separate from sinners. He is undefiled. He is completely pure. And his intercession for you goes to the Father in absolute moral perfection into the presence of a holy God. Thirdly, his intercession for you, and never forget it, his intercession for you is compassionate intercession. Your high priest is filled with compassion for you, believer. Keep your finger here, turn to chapter 4, and remember these very familiar words. In chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, the writer says, Hebrews 4.14 and following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the old writers said, There is no groan that rises from a believer's distressed heart, but it is immediately felt at the tender heart of the Lord Jesus at the Father's right hand. There is no groan, there is no sigh, there is no hurt, there is no sorrow that you groan before the Father that is not felt by your divine intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, His compassion for you is omnipotent compassion. Not just a compassion that would help if it could, but a compassion that does help because he is God in the flesh. And it is prompt. It is prompt intercession. He's never absent from his place. The believer always knows where he is to be found. He's ever at the right hand of God, waiting to undertake whatever you commit to him in your prayers. He is prompt in hearing and answering. His timing may not be your timing, but his intercession for you is immediate, 
and prompt. You'll never go to him and wonder, is he hearing? Not if you think biblically. You'll never go to him and say, I wonder if he's taking a break from interceding today. That will never happen. His intercession is prompt. His intercession for you is earnest. You pray for a person, perhaps earnestly, but even then it cannot compare to the infinite earnest intercession of the Savior. When you intercede for someone, it's going to wane over time. It never does with your Savior. His intercession for you never cools. His intercession for you is authoritative because he received the commission to be intercessor from the Father. His intercession for you prevails. It will succeed. It must succeed. It has to succeed. It will prevail because he asks for nothing for which he has not already paid the full price by his own precious shed blood. Everything for what he intercedes, everything for which he intercedes has already been paid for in his shed blood on the cross. And so it must prevail. And it cannot fail. And then it's constant. It's constant. Morning, noon, night, he ever lives to make intercession for you, his people. What are the characteristics? Christ's intercession for you is skillful, morally pure, compassionate, prompt, earnest, authoritative, prevalent, constant. Now, I'd say you're, I'd say you're love people. What do you think? Listen, God did not need us to express his love. That's why the wonder of it. God's love was fully expressed in the unity of the Godhead of the three sacred persons. God's love for us is not grounded in something outside of himself. It is sovereign love. He has loved us freely. And having determined to love us from eternity, no sacrifice was too great to save us, even the sacrifice of God's own dear Son. And he loves us still and always will. And God loves you in providing the mediator who died for you and who now intercedes for you. And now there is a throne of grace that is erected for you to come to, to come and stay and not leave. It's always there for you because God's love for you and his compassion for you will not and cannot fail. One of the old writers says, there is more grace in the promise than there can be sin and misery in the man that pleads it. In other words, God's grace is greater than your sin. Our Lord is no longer on the cross, but having finished his work, he has gained his crown, and he now dispenses his grace that he's won for us when he shed his blood on the cross. That's what he's doing. What is Jesus Christ doing in heaven? Dispensing his grace that he purchased for you on the cross. That's what he's doing for you in heaven. Well, let me say a few things in conclusion before coming to the table. Do we not have the greatest encouragement as we come to the table this morning? Believer, behold your high priest in heaven for you, living, interceding, prevailing, Come to the mercy seat. Are you struggling with sin? Come to the mercy seat. You have a great high priest. Do you need encouragement? 
Come to the mercy seat. You have a great high priest. Do you need persevering grace? Do you feel like giving up? Come to your great intercessor in heaven. Let me take a moment to speak to my unbelieving friends who are here this morning. You need this mediator who died for sinners, who lives for sinners. Go to him. Cast away your works and rely completely on his finished work. What you need more than anything is to have your confidence in your own ability shattered. So that you see that there is only one that can save and only one that can redeem. You need this mediator because there is no other. You'll not stand before him on the day of judgment and say, Oh, I trusted this religious figure, this philosophy, or I did this good thing. If you don't have the mediator, you'll be lost. You know, we speak of God's wrath and we speak of God's love. Do you not see how closely related love and wrath are? That the Lord created man in Adam, we rejected his love, and God's wrath, says an old theologian, is the tip of the flame of his love. So return to the God who is love. Old Robert Trail said, There is no court in all God's dominions that a sinner can come to and find any mercy or grace, but only at this throne of grace. And that's true. Now, people of God... <clears throat> I can't help myself. I've got to bring a quote to you. It's just too good not to bring. One of the old writers on the intercessory work of Christ, and that will end our time together around this text before coming to the table. Christ entered into heaven not without blood. To appear in the presence of God for us, He goes to the portals of the upper sanctuary, holds in his hand the memorials of his sacrifice. At his approach, the celestial gates fly open. He enters in the name and on the behalf of his people. He opens and no one can shut till all his redeemed and chosen have followed him there. And then he shuts and no one can open, either to invade their peace or to pluck one of the countless multitude from their happy abode. The permanent continuance of the redeemed in the state of glory stands connected with the intercession of Jesus. He is priest forever. Not only is everlasting glory the effect of his intercession, but it is the subject of everlasting intercession. He ever liveth to make intercession. The perpetuity of heavenly blessings and the acceptance of celestial services must all be traced to this source. Not a ray of light, not a smile of favor, not a thrill of gladness, not a note of joy for which the inhabitants of heaven are not indebted to the Christ standing with the golden censer of incense at the throne. Remove this illustrious personage from the situation. Divest him of his official character. Put out of view his sacerdotal function. And all security for the continual continuance of celestial benefits is gone. In other words, he's saying, if you were to remove Christ as priest, this would be the result. The crowns fall from the heads of the redeemed, and the palms of victory drop from their hands. The harps of gold are unstrung, and the shouts of hallelujahs cease forever. Nay, heaven must discharge itself of its human inhabitants, and the whole be sent away into irremediable perdition. 
But no such appalling catastrophe need ever be feared. It won't happen. It will never happen. God's people will never be lost. Christ ever liveth to make intercession. Your inheritance is secure. The promise of your perseverance to the end is promised through his shed blood. His intercession as he presents his merit to the Father secures that multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, nation on earth that has been purchased with his own shed blood. Now I ask you once again, where is your high priest? Where? Sitting on the throne of the Father. Now turn to Revelation 3.21. The Lord Jesus says this to his people. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, and who conquer? All of God's people purchased by Jesus' blood. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with... Jesus is saying this. Listen now. Jesus is saying this. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 22 verse 1 says, The throne of God and the Lamb. Do you see? Jesus, your high priest, has ascended on high. He sits at the right hand of the Father. There he intercedes for you. He says, You, believer, are going to sit with me on my throne. And my throne is my Father's throne. I mean, folks, we just don't get it. We don't understand the blessings that are ours. We can hardly contemplate what awaits us as children of the living God for whom Jesus shed his blood, for whom he intercedes. You are going to sit on the throne of the Lamb, which is the throne of the Father, where Jesus, the exalted Savior sits in intercession for you. No matter how little you have in this life, there's not a poor Christian here. I'm not minimizing poverty and difficulties. I'm maximizing the promise of His grace to every believer. Those persecuted in Iraq this morning in northern Nigeria this morning, in the Sudan this morning, in North Korea this morning, those of us sitting here must be a big throne because we'll all be there. Every one of us. Do you not know the saints will judge the world, says Paul? And so we follow his pattern to victory. What was the pattern? He came down in humiliation 
He was exalted. His people, we go down in humiliation in this world. We are exalted in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so come to the table and remember his death and cling to his risen power and delight in his intercession and know for certain that he will fulfill every promise that he has made to us in his word. All promises will be fulfilled. He will bring to completion the work that he has begun in you. That's the promise of your great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who intercedes. God's people said, Amen. Amen.